0: Hello, and welcome to Probably Science. My name's Andy Wood. I'm Matt Kirshen. Andy's back from Burning I'm Man. Back. I'm back Thank from New York. You. Thank you guys for your patience with our, our strange release schedule, but we're back in it, and we've got a great episode for you this week. Uh, very excited to have the author of the soon-to-be-released How to Invent Everything. Ryan North is going to talk with us in just a few minutes. He's also the creator of Dinosaur Comics, and he's written for Adventure Time, the comic series, or he, actually, he is the sole
1: writer of that comic book series. Won the Eisner Award for that. Oh, ah. And the choosable path Shakespeare books, you'll hear about that later on in the show. But his main book, the one we're discussing for the most part in the show, How to Invent Everything, A Survival Guide for the Stranded Time Traveller. It's great. I think you'll like it. I think you'll like this interview as well.
0: Before we get into it, I want to thank our donors. We haven't done that in a couple weeks. We really appreciate everyone who's been going over to ProbablyScience.com and clicking on the PayPal Donate button. Those people include Lindsay Bacon, Trevor Hubbard, Robert Condon, Thomas Hatfield, Patrick Chalkley, Jeffrey Gelbach, Oren Malafant, Sean Gordon, Bryson Rhodes, Svanamir Kroons, Jacob Rochester,
1: Stuart Holding, Brooks Gilmore, Karen Meeburn, Alexander, oh, I've got, we've, we know Jakubson, how to... Jakubson, It I is believe. Jakubson, that's right. James Castle. Callum Gleeson Drew Chapman Matthew Arnold Daniel Monson Austin Wallsworth, Jake Swenson Peter Lipci,
0: Be- Becky Grady Leanne Magier Keith Stettenfield, Stephen Edmonds Pandora Young Vikram Bhatt, Emma Wilton William Mulligan and William Bagley Thank you all thank- very
1: much Thank you all of you It's very generous The other way you can support the show is by spreading the word uh, writing nice things about us on your podcast listener of choice, iTunes or what have you, and tweeting, Facebooking, all that kind of good thing. Telling people in person, explaining what a podcast is, and then downloading our one as the first one as uh, an example.
0: Or inventing the medium of podcasting if you happen to be a time traveler stuck in the past and you have a book such as the one we're about to discuss, instructing you how to get all technologies invented. Andy, that is a flawless
1: link. <laughs> Thank you. Is that a Jesse-level segue? Uh, no, I'd say that was... that. That's that's T V quality. Oh,
0: excellent. Well without any further ado, let's get to the author of How to Invent Everything, Ryan North.
1: Probably science.
0: Please, uh, welcome to the show, the author of How to Invent Everything, Mr. Ryan North. Hello, thank you for having me. Hey thanks Ryan. For being here.
1: Thanks, thanks for joining us over the internet. Over that their internet. Uh We'll get into the internet in a bit because that's one of the things. So, uh, before, before we get into the book, uh, I, I want to know because you ha- you have a science background. So, can we just start with that?
2: Sure, with my with my my science background. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, it's I mean, saying science background kind of oversells it a bit. I have I mean, I have, I have a master's of science, but it's in linguistics, and it's funny when I was uh, writing my bio for this book, I sent in. My normal bio to the publisher Because I, I do a lot of different stuff Like comic books and things like that Right And so I sent my regular bio into my publisher That says, you know, Ryan writes The Beatable Squirrel Girl for Marvel And dinosaur comics and all this stuff And she was like, do you have any science credentials You can put in this? Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, right, I have a master's of science I forgot I <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> put that in and then I realized uh, masters of S- saying, I forgot I have a master's of science, was so suspicious that I took a picture of my degree and sent it to her in a separate email. It was even more suspicious. It's just like, like, where were you at last night? Nowhere. I was at home. Here's a photo of me at home. I have nothing to say. <laughs> I
0: mean, it is very, that's very empirical of you to provide evidence of your master's of science. So like that, if nothing speaks to science, that does. So.
1: Yes. So here, um, here I am standing next to today's newspaper and a clock. <laughs> How good? Yeah, I just happened to have this picture ready.
2: So yeah, my background is, it's a degree in computational linguistics, which is um, a field of AI concerned with getting computers to speak natural languages like English or others. And before that, I did my undergrad in computer science.
0: Which makes sense, because those those chapters of the book are particularly well fleshed out. Not that it all isn't well fleshed out. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, this book is very uh, near and dear to my heart because I've actually thought about this. I'm kind of obsessive and I've had this sort of paralyzing fear from time to time that like, even though I think I'm smart and we think we're smart, are we only smart in relation to what mankind already has? And if you stripped all that away, could could any of us get to the point of internal combustion engine or even steam engine or, uh, I don't know, um, pasteurization or something that would keep us from dying?
1: Yeah, yeah, let's, so I, yeah let's talk about this a bit. I, I, I do want to circle back to computational linguistics at some point because I think you're the first computational linguist, or at least someone who studied it that we've had on the show, so... Sure. Uh, but this, this book is essentially... The subtitle is A Survival Guide for the t- uh, Stranded Time Traveller. So it's essentially what I'm sure many people have thought about in the past is if you got dropped at any period in history, including prehistory, what could you create? Could you recreate the world we live in?
2: Yes. Um, it's funny. I, I, I think, like, like many people, I thought about this a long time, basically since seeing Back to the Future at age six, and when I announced the book, It was all people saying, "Oh man, I've I've been thinking about this too." And I was like, "I think I think we're not alone. I think most of us have sort of fantasized about if we were dropped in some random period in time, what what we could do and how what, we could commit or tell the truth. What
1: could you reinvent?" And and the book is basically chapter by chapter, just showing you, effectively explaining the effectively explaining the universe, explaining the world, but with the conceit of how could you recreate it? How could you invent it?
0: And if you were dropped in a random time, sort of Army of, Army of Darkness style, you've got this book in your trunk instead of the chemistry book Ash has, uh, how to figure out where you are in time and then what to do based on that.
2: Yes, it was it was a lot of fun to write. And I mean, a lot of research too, obviously. But I feel at the end of it, and hopefully readers will feel the same after reading it, I felt after writing it, like I'm a more competent person now. just <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, when, and- this stuff makes me feel like, I'm better suited to negotiate the world <laughs> to and it, navigate
1: it and it's worth pointing out as well it's not just technology in the book or science it sort of includes things like domesticating animals or music like how, yeah it's
2: it's for civilization and you don't have a civilization without art so there's um there's music and and art and making dogs out of wolves <laughs> and all the things you need
1: right exactly if, if how would you go about domesticating the wolf and turning it into the poodle we know and love <laughs> or getting corn to be
0: edible and not just a like two centimeter long thing with seven kernels on it or whatever early corn was yeah
2: yeah disappointing early corn yeah
0: that was fascinating that chapter about all the early versions of foods that we domesticated and how awful all of them were
2: it's crazy you think we tend to think of the natural <clears throat> pardon me of the natural world being natural and and unspoiled but you know you look at a at a field of corn and that's so artificial <laughs> The the plant itself we created
0: Right, everyone who gets mad about genetic modification, it's like, well, humans have been doing that. It's not what you think it is, but they have been doing that since the dawn of agriculture.
2: So. Yeah, yeah,
1: we just got better at it. Carrots don't look anything like they used to. We're now on our fourth species of banana. I think I might be wrong about the number, but I know all bananas are clones of each other, right? And we're on we're on something like our fourth one.
2: Yeah, and there's a there's a plague that's affecting some of them, right? Like I heard we might be on our next one soon. Right, <laughs> <Interesting>. banana. <laughs>
1: I didn't know that every avocado I've ever
0: had has also been descended from one dude's tree that was only a hundred years ago or so.
2: That's crazy. Yeah, that that part blew my mind. The idea of like this stuff we take for granted being effectively random. Yeah. Of just like trying stuff out and seeing what works. And when you're relying on people trying stuff out, you're basically rolling the dice every time. So if you go back and rerun civilization, you're not going to have the same avocados or 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 grapefruits or corn probably. Yeah, it's just because somebody
0: happened to have that that good tree, I guess.
1: Yeah. Uh, where did you? What did you start with when you were researching the book? Where did you? Because I, again, this is the sort of book that, as a reader, you can you can read it cover to cover, but it's also very easy to dip in and out of. You can just you can flick through it. But when you were starting the project, how did you did you divvy it up? Like, did you have? Were you systematic about it?
2: I I I, I wish I were. <laughs> I <just laughs> basically spent I did did tons and tons of reading and research and. Um, I had to convince myself that the book was possible because I had this idea of making this, you know, survival guide for time traveler, but it would, it would work as like an interesting popular science book. If you weren't stranded at a random period in the past, but I also wanted to be like a, a legitimate attempt to solve this problem of being trapped in the past and not knowing how to rebuild things. And I wasn't sure that was possible to, you know, collapse all of civilization into 400 and some odd pages. So, I remember I just, I started writing at the front, doing the, um, the fictional wrapper for it, where your time machine's broken down, you're trapped in the past, and you've got this repair guide, and the repair guide says, you know, uh, time machines are the most complicated machines humans have ever made. There's no user serviceable parts inside. You're not going to fix it. Instead, here's how to rebuild civilization so you'll be more comfortable. <laughs> and um, I, I just started with the, uh, with language, because that's what I knew. Right. And then went from there, I made a table of contents of all the things I wanted to cover in the book. And most of them made it in. I didn't, I cut out a chapter on weapons because I thought we don't really need it. And also, if you want a weapon, you can probably you're gonna improvise one from some other technology yeah. in the book. <laughs> There's a lot of things that will explode in the chemistry section. You're you're good there.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you've, you, t- you tell us how to make various metals. So, you know, you can always sharpen those and yeah them. i mean you
2: can sharpen we we're killing people with sharpened stones so you'll right. get there <laughs> if you want to you want to murder someone you don't need my book for that <laughs> but it's if you want to bake a nice pie you do
1: well we actually do have a the interview straight after you with the author of how to murder someone <laughs> at any point in history a survival guide for the stranded murderer oh uh, my god i would so read that book <laughs> it's, it's mostly just hit him with a thing yeah, I'm surprised yeah, there wasn't and,
0: one little nod to what you could do in pre-World War II uh, Austria to, to change things for the better. But um, I guess if you're stuck then, you know where you are probably.
2: Yeah, it's funny because there's a bit in the book. Sort of my conception of the book was this book, if if time travel existed, then this would be the single most dangerous book on the planet. Because if you have it, you can change all of history at any point in history. So I had this big idea of like, let's make the world's most dangerous book if time travel exists. I was at the bookstore and I saw a book called How Hitler
1: Could Have Won World War II. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> okay, second most second dangerous book. Yeah. <laughs> this is sort of the ultimate Biff's almanac.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That I mean, I think that's where it came from when I was six, just, you know, thinking about going back in time and, you know, arriving at some point and saying, hey, the future's great. We have computers. And they'll say, how do you? Build a computer, and I'd say, I don't know, but they're, they're
1: yeah. great when you get them. them yeah. Nate, you ever heard Nate Bargatze has a great joke about, like, on that premise, but it just got, How know, we all... I don't even know, I could prove I'm from the future. Right. <laughs> I'd like, yeah. end up having yeah, but... a, a worse job then than I do now. <laughs> <laughs> but that's
2: it, right? Like, the idea that. I could say I'm from the future, and they'd say, "Prove it." And I'd be like, "I, I don't know. I can tell you some stories, but yep. I might just be a good fiction writer."
1: We've got this thing that's like a foe It's you just it's in your pocket, and it connects to other people. Trust me, we'll have it someday. I can't make it.
0: <laughs> I can draw a picture of it, but it's gonna look like a square, a rectangle. Yeah.
1: You well, keep
2: it in your pocket. You go to the bathroom. You look at it, and someone tells you you're a loser, and you're like, "Why did I look at this box?" Ah. <laughs> uh,
1: well, right at the beginning. So, uh, one of the first things in the book is you tell us. How to even find out where you are? Let's assume you've just landed at some point in the past, and you have a little flowchart that lets you know both where you are in time and space. And a lot of those yeah. are
0: dead ends that are sort of like, "Sorry, man, you're you're screwed."
2: <laughs> if you go back before the Big Bang, like you're out of my jurisdiction. Sorry.
0: Right, yeah. or even I mean, most of this is only useful when we have modern humans, right? Which is about how long ago again?
2: Around two hundred thousand. Two hundred thousand um, years ago for the anatomically modern humans.
0: And I didn't realize that even since that time, uh, some major constellations have changed shapes. So you could figure out where you are within that based on like how the Big Dipper looks compared to how you're used to it looking.
2: Yeah. Cause I mean, that's, it's not a huge, I mean, it's a huge amount of time by our standards, but not by cosmic standards, but still you, you these are all stars moving around and we're moving around too. So it makes sense. They'd move a little bit, but yeah, it's, um, I mean, the whole, the big idea was this is a book that you can use at any point in history to rebuild civilization, but you kind of have to have other people in your civilization. Otherwise, it's not a civilization. It's just you having a weird party, right? Right, (laughs) So um, it'll hopefully help you survive a little bit longer if you're trapped before humans are around, but you're not going to be... No one's going to be building statues of you. Right, right.
1: I'd still be happy just going down there and fucking up some butterflies. (laughs) 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 Just to see what happens. Yeah, that's all I want to do. Show up before humans. I don't know whether humans. I, I'm sure butterflies of some sort must predate humans. Sure, let's say yeah, yeah. Let's, let's say yes. There'll be something similar at the very least that I can break. <laughs> um, so
2: go back and break things.
1: Yeah, just go back, break things, and just see how it see how it turns out.
0: Assuming you <laughs> fix your time machine and come back to the present, of course.
1: Oh, uh, I just yes.
0: <laughs> or someone saves you. Like, couldn't you also have like some kind of like through time phone call thing to s- customer support?
2: I mean, I built the the fictional narrative around the book to answer all those questions with no, just to, to make the book uh, more self-contained. But right, right. I mean, I, I love the idea of renting out time machines to members of the general public. Like, it's so irresponsible. It's so such <laughs> an insane thing to do, but it's such a fun trip to go on. Yeah.
0: Sorry, man. They're disruptors. They're disrupting the time travel <laughs>
1: economy.
0: <laughs> It's the, it's the Uber
1: of, of time machines. Just become too big to fail. Yeah. If it were wrong, it wouldn't be so profitable. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just keep going back to before regulations existed.
0: <laughs> so early on, once you figure out where you are, and if you are in those early days of humanity, you say one of the biggest things you can do to help everyone get this giant leap forward is spoken language, which falls mm-hmm. into your wheelhouse pretty well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So there's this, there's these two sort of big phases of humanity where you have... Uh, anatomically modern humans which are humans whose skeletons look like ours and they seem to have the same bodies and then you have behaviorally modern humans and they show up 150,000 years later and these are humans that you know make art and bury their dead and seem to be a lot more closer to us culturally than the earlier ones were and the question is well what what caused that difference and um this is one of the the problem with writing a book like this where it's presumably from the future where they know everything is you have to look at these questions we don't have the answers to and kind of make a guess and put an end note saying here's where the science is and here's where the questions are but one of the theories that causes difference between behaviorally modern and anatomically modern humans is that we started talking to each other we invented language and could communicate with words and that's that's a it sounds easy but it's also just a huge idea like this is the first time you have ideas being communicated reliably and like ideas surviving outside the host of the body of the person who thought of them. And these are things that I think would really transform
1: society, right, because create once, society. Really. Once you can talk to each other, once you have working language, you can both share and expand, mu- you can trade mutual knowledge and expand knowledge as a, as a result. But also, once you have the ability to communicate a complex idea, you can then have more complex ideas.
2: Yeah, and that's, that's so critical. The idea that you can now you have the tool you need to think of better thoughts. <laughs> it's, it's, it almost sounds like a like a riddle, but it's it's so fundamental. It's what it's what language gives us. And I, one of the things I wanted to try, sort of drive home in the book is that we tend to think of of language as sort of just a thing that we get for free because we none of us remember learning our first language. It was just always there. But this is this is a technology that we created. And like writing written language, that's something that we invented too. And this is something that you know you don't get for free and you have to be taught and i think conceptualizing it as a technology makes it underlines how important it is and how fragile it is
1: uh and you, you so within the conceit of the book again you one of the first things you explain is how to create a language
2: <laughs> yeah and there's there's really not a lot of wrong answers there like we've made a bunch of different languages there's um and there's artificial languages that try to tweak one of the rules like the universals we tend to see there's these things called linguistic universals that are constant across every natural language we've seen so that's that's a language that humans speak naturally Mm -hmm. and then there's constructed languages which is usually some guy in his apartment making up a language and you can break those universals there and it doesn't make the language impossible to learn but usually tweaks it in some some weird way I know a Klingon purposely uses a subject-verb-object order that isn't used normally to make the language seem alien mm. <laughs> to us.
1: Huh, huh.
2: Yeah, it's. I mean, there's a lot of thought that goes into Klingon. I say but, this as a Star Trek fan, but also as a linguist.
1: <laughs> but, but it does still have subject, verb, and object. It still has, as yeah. you sort of say in the table at the beginning, all languages have nouns, all languages have verbs, and all languages have vowels and pronouns.
2: Yeah, because we're all working with the same basic equipment. Usually to speak, is most of the time we're using our mouths. And we live in a world of things that do things. So you have nouns and verbs you're usually trying to describe and predict the world around you. So, I mean, conceivably, if you had someone living in a world in which nothing happened, maybe a language wouldn't involve verbs. (laughs) It would just be (laughs) nouns around you, things you could point at and communicate with that. But it seems hard to conceptualize that in a way that makes sense
1: right and then and then written language is like the next thing to develop which takes the ability to share and expand knowledge an extra step
2: yeah it makes it lets ideas survive the death cuz spoken language lets ideas survive the death of the host i.e. your death but written language lets ideas survive the death of yourself and everyone around you and even your whole civilization if your language can be deciphered so it makes them more resilient and also lets you Ship these ideas when you write them down, you know, at the same expense as shipping grain, <laughs> you're just moving them like physical objects and that like I, I I never get over the idea that we can write down ideas and move them around physically and then someone else can pick up that object and have the idea like that seems magical to me. Right. it It's it that that it, yeah. it, it crazy, right? And even the act of reading, you pick up this object and then you're hearing the thoughts I wrote in your head in your own voice. <laughs> if we didn't have this technology, it would be so spooky and weird. But it lets me ins- insert thoughts into your head, in your own voice. Like, that's insane.
1: Right. Uh, <laughs> well, you go th- I'm, I'm just going to go straight through the table right at the beginning of the book, because you sort of go through five fundamental technologies you need for your civilization. So the first right. two are spoken and then written languages. Third one is dear to my heart as a former failing math student, which is non-sucky numbers. <laughs> So the ability yeah. to write to write and understand numbers that are more than just a tally chart. Yes. Um,
2: I, sort of, I dunk a lot on Roman numerals in that section because <laughs> you can make a very credible case that they really held back that civilization. <laughs> right. It, it's a number system, but you have to do math before you can even do math to figure out what these characters rep- represent. There's no intuition there because the length of the number doesn't correspond to its value. So it's just, it's like if... If you're reading words, before you even read the word, you had to like look up a chart to see what the letters right. actually represented. And
1: it's also both additive and subtractive as well, depending on the position of the numbers. Like it's some, kind of a mess. Sometimes well, so adding an extra...
0: Parentheses around things. Yeah. And, yeah
1: sometimes adding an extra character increases the value of a number, and sometimes it decreases depending on where it is relative to... The system can make the numbers slide away. The system
2: slide away, so you're just dealing with abstract thought. The more intuitive will be to work with the same with words right the the easier you can just understand what the word is saying the more you understand the language and what what's trying to be conveyed
1: right and, and when you to when you're sort of abstracting the numbers i think again that is people talk about just the existence of zero as being a big step in mathematics but i think more than that or as well as that that's sort of what zero represents which is the the leap to understanding numbers as something that isn't necessarily tied to a physical thing that that first level of leap beyond
0: here how many apples i have
1: yeah what here's a dash for each apple or even a number that represents that number of apples now you you're abstracting which then enables you to start thinking about higher mathematics which then enables higher mathematics which then enables most technology
2: yeah it feels like such a baby step to us because we've made that step as children but it must have felt like just this dizzying sense to take that step from i'm imagining a sheep to i'm imagining one right <laughs> from, from 10 crows yeah. to just 10
1: exactly this this it, idea it, for just the number 5 to be torn away fr- from any specific real world, world context just to be a number 5 because then once you it's can un- what? sorry go for it
2: so go go
1: Oh, all I was going to say is because once you can do that, then you can then you can also understand a number, a half, or a number pi, or a number uh, i. I the, exactly, yeah. and the imaginary number. You can. That's suddenly not such a crazy idea once you've abstracted natural numbers.
2: I remember uh, being in, I think it was undergrad math class, and we were we were talking about the axioms in mathematics that these assumptions we make to build a number system that we all agree are probably true, but we can't really prove. And stuff like, you know, A plus B is the same as B plus A. And we started building these number systems that didn't have those axioms in it. And the teacher sort of led us all this realization that we're like, wait, if we can do this, then numbers, we're just making it up. (laughs) You can build a number system around anything. And he was like, that's the point. This is all just, we've constructed it. This is pure thought. But it. We use the number system we use because it reflects the reality around us, and that's proven to be historically useful to have numbers that match up with reality. But taking away the scaffolding of of sheep and prose entirely to just say these are ideas that we've made rules of how they combine, I think that's really cool. Even for someone who's never been the greatest at, at abstract mathematics, I love that it could be decoupled almost entirely from reality. Right, cause Cause that's, that's,
1: that's a huge. That's a huge leap. In the same way that both spoken and written language is a huge leap to be able to understand higher concepts, like emotion and art, and uh, all these high, high concepts require a level of abstraction of language, as well. It's not just yeah. Th- cow is the thing you point out. That's a cow. it's suddenly that's when you start developing adverbs and adjectives and <laughs> metaphor and
2: ways to describe the world. Yeah, but, it's, I think. One of the things that, that really uh, impressed me doing the research for this book is this realization that, you know, all this stuff we take for granted, like abstract numbers and, and written language and stuff, it's all stuff we've taught. And it seems so easy to us now because we know the answers. <laughs> we've already learned it. Right. But we didn't back then. And the idea that you could take someone from hundreds of thousands of years ago and just take them as a baby and teach them, raise them as you would any other child in the modern era, and you get a fully modern human that's amazing. Like it's it really underlines how much we stand on the shoulders of everything that's come before, and we take it for granted. We're like, yeah, I know what a, I know what two plus two is, and I can tell you what a negative number means. <laughs> there's no there's no mystery there, right? Again, that that's a,
1: the, a a minus number is again just completely normal to anyone who grows up in the twentieth or twenty first century. But it must have been mind blowing to try and explain that to someone from three thousand years ago. Yeah.
2: It's it's just like people were arguing they were nonsensical and absurd. How can you have negative five somethings? <laughs> right. So awkward. I can it's take just...
1: away five from something, but I can't have I can't add minus five. Even yeah. though those are the and, same thing mathematically.
2: I love the 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 subtle thing that gives us where numbers now have an emotional content where they didn't before. Where <laughs> plus five is good and minus five is bad. Now we're reacting to these numbers emotionally. Right. <laughs> like that that's so cool.
0: Yeah how do you know when you land at a certain time that introducing one of these concepts won't get you burned at the stake? Like, is there a good way to test out whether a piece of technology is too advanced for the current civilization you find yourself in?
2: Um, I would say that historically there's less burning at the stake that actually happened than we think. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a positive. But um, I don't really have a lot of advice for, you know, how to not be mistaken for an evil spirit in some way or a malicious actor. I think the best way you can do is you know, lead by example. Mm-hmm. Like if you land in this civilization where they're all suspicious of you and they're they're not trusting what you're doing, start your own civilization and make it better. And you'll you'll bring people over because people want to be comfortable. And if your civilization has penicillin and beer, that's really attractive. Very right <laughs> point. Yeah. It just has water and disease.
0: And if you're surrounded by non-speaking humans, then the chances of them having some sort of mythology you're going to defy is pretty slim, right? So if you're introducing spoken language, you're probably at a good point to not (laughs) have people scared of you.
1: Yeah, we're still way in prehistory now. The the last two things on the list, you've got uh, the scientific method. Again, that's a huge thing that came relatively late in civilization.
2: Mm -hmm. Way too late, way too late. I mean, later on the book, I'm talking about um, medicine and... and and how to help people who are sick. And it sort of underlines how we spent hundreds and hundreds of years laboring under this four-humorous humor, four theory of disease <laughs> where diseases are caused by an imbalance, one of these four liquids in your body, and if you have too much blood, get some leeches and suck it out of it. And this is, like, objectively wrong. Right. <laughs> There's very little to recommend that, but we spent centuries.
1: There, there was... I was actually, weirdly, I was at a talk last night where someone was talking about problems in modern medicine where someone, where people have had labored under misapprehensions and misconceptions that have lasted too long but they pointed out that Galen the legendary doctor from 2000 years ago had a theory about the circulation of blood uh, which one's the artery blood and the ve- the venous blood and one was mm-hmm. generated I think in the heart one was generated in the liver, I'm going to get those facts wrong but whatever it facts. was, <laughs> those facts those wrong facts <laughs> everything's a fact, some yeah. are just incorrect facts but uh, that stayed as the prevalent medical theory for something like fifteen hundred years
2: yeah no it's it's absolutely heartbreaking because it's it's all this time spent with these wrong ideas, these wrong facts as you call <laughs> i love the of incorrect facts <laughs> um and it's they weren't they weren't re-examined. they didn't have the scientific method of a way to critically examine things that you think are true in a way that is reproducible by other people. So it's a lot of argument from authority and take my word for it. And how can it be wrong? This is how we've done it for 400 years. Of course it's this way. And it's just, it's like a, a handbrake on human development for for, for centuries, or thousands of years.
0: Yeah. In a lot of these charts, you showed when various things were introduced and how early they could have, based on what our brains were capable of understanding, could have been introduced. And like there's just these head-slappingly large gaps between a lot of these things.
2: It was it was fun to write because most most uh, science books I feel tend to take the the point of view that humans are pretty smart and we've done some pretty cool things, which is true. But there's also these huge gaps of time in which we could have invented something and didn't invent the thing, and we had all the pieces we need and just didn't push them together in the right way. The most uh, embarrassing one I think is for the the compass, mm-hmm. which is you know a great invention unlocks navigating the world. And all you need for it is a little piece of magnet, right? So we knew some rocks stuck together around 200 BCE. But the first magnet only shows up around 1000 CE. And then it's used for fortune telling, not even navigation. It takes another 100 years to tell. <laughs> and so it's just like, there's 1,200 years in which we had everything we needed to invent the compass and didn't invent the compass. And the compass isn't hard. Like When you think of a compass, you think of you know the little needle on a pin and a piece of plastic. But the first compass is, if you have a piece of magnetic material, a rock, you can just... Tie a string to it and hang the rock from a string. The string lets the rock rotate freely. The rock points towards magnetic north, and there's your compass. And tying a rock to a string took that's us like over a thousand years. <laughs> right?
0: Yeah, there were some really interesting ways around. Like one of the things I thought of first when I got the book was how are you going to get a common language for science things in terms of like meters, kilograms, seconds? And mm-hmm. it's actually pretty easy. Like you had, you have a ruler in the book, so if that's to scale, you can get to meters pretty quickly. And then, um, I didn't even think about that this, but the seconds uh, get a pendulum of a fixed length and you know what the period of that pendulum is going to be.
2: Yeah. You can, was, it. you can get every, just about every unit you needed metric from the centimeter. So I printed one in the book and said, don't use this page. Right. <laughs> this is <an> important page. <laughs>
0: well, and, thinks, oh, don't um, use that page as in like, don't use this as f- fire fuel or something or.
2: Yeah. Don't yeah. use this page as fire fuel or toilet paper. Save it for last. Right. <laughs> this is a really important page.
1: And again, it doesn't, as you even say in the book, it doesn't matter what units you have as long as the units are consistent is that you can invent your own centimeter or inch or whatever as long as you are as long as you're consistent across everything
2: consistent and reproducible yeah because we have those like the early temperature scales where newton was like oh yeah it's a temperature of my backyard in spring (laughs) right (laughs) that's (laughs) useless. i cannot use that as a temperature scale where water freezes that's more universal we can work with that well um,
0: and you can get to kilograms with just length units, because then you can get a cubic centimeter of water, or a liter of water, and weigh that, because yep. it's all related. It's because metric's better than... Uh, it turns out metric's a little better than Imperial.
2: <laughs> it's a lot better than Imperial. I'm I'm so, like, hardcore on metric. <laughs> uh,
1: well, you also grew up in Canada, put- which...
2: Canada and the rest of the world, except yeah. for South Sudan and America,
1: is that true? Oh well, wow. uh, and Britain, which is still some awkward hybrid. You're I mean, to I mean, we've we've talked about this on the show before. I Britain forgot. still has, firstly, generation above me that really doggedly clinging on imperial to imperial measurements, but also we we still have we're, we're this sort of half-assed, not quite road street signs and. Speed, street speed limits are still done in miles and miles per hour. Oh, okay. And fruit and vegetables sold in both. And weather temperature is sort of there's still the generation, my generation, a little bit above it, still has this weird hybrid where we like Celsius when it's cold and Fahrenheit when it's hot. Oh, I didn't
0: know that. Oh, I didn't know
1: that. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Still like sub zero for cold, but still going ah, it's in the 80s. Ah, oh, better better oh, wow. get get su- sunscreen out. Yeah, uh, there's not perfect.
2: We have we have like full on Celsius for temperature and most everything is metric except for personal body weight, which is still in pounds. Oh, there's the, the
1: there's the other weird one in Britain. Britain stone. does stones. Stone,
2: yeah. <laughs> what is that stone? Is that just <laughs> the weight of a stone? Pounds?
1: It is hang on. How many how many ounces are there in a pound? Sixteen. Okay, then it's fourteen pounds in a stone. Okay. I know I always remember one's fourteen, one's sixteen, but I can't remember which way around. That's insane. Uh, I presume there was just one stone that was the original stone that things are measured against. 14
2: <laughs> fourteen-pound stone, like that's a memorable stone.
1: Yeah, you know, like horses are done in hands.
2: Yeah, I mean in Canada, weights done or heights done in feet and inches still.
1: Oh yeah, Brits I also. I I wonder actually that if my younger sisters know, are more likely to know their height in centimeters. But I don't think so. I think they still do feet and inches as well.
2: I always do it in in metric because I'm two meters tall, and I love how nice and round that is. That
1: is very nice. That's pretty tall.
0: What is that, six? uh... That's six, six and a half. Damn. Yeah. (laughs) You must have been eating some of those advanced uh, agriculture things. None of this (laughs) prehistory stuff for you.
1: So the the last, well, on that subject, you also would have need a fair bit of sustenance to get that tool because the last one, I I wouldn't have thought of this as one of the five tenets of civilization, but calorie surplus.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the idea that uh, you're producing more food than you need to eat, and so you have farming. You have what it really unlocks when you have reliable food sources is a you're not worrying about where your next meal is coming from, and b that frees you up to worry about more interesting things like why do why do apples fall from trees or why do people get sick? Like all these right. questions that you, when you start answering them using the scientific method, you start discovering things about yourself and your species in the world around you. That only happens when you're not hungry and you're not worried about eating, because worrying about food takes up a lot of time. Right. So you and said, it's distracting.
1: It's the end of hunter-gathering, is what you, is how you just hunting and yeah. gathering.
2: Yeah, and the beginning of civilization, because it's 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 where it's the foundation I think on which everything else lies is just a consistent, reliable source of food, because that lets you ignore the demands of your body for most of the day and you start doing other stuff.
1: Right. So once you've got, once you have language both written and verbal to trade things and you've got abstract number systems and you have the scientific method and then you have this free time and not the immediate risk of death from starvation then you can start discussing higher ideas and then that's where civilization comes from
2: yeah i mean the catch is that if you're hunting and gathering in a time in which food is plentiful then farming absolutely sucks because (laughs) it's so much more work You're having to take care of crops and take care of animals. All this all this labor when something you can get for free from the environment is right there. So in a time of plentiful food it's hard, but in times of less plentiful food it's much more safe and reliable. And also it has all these other benefits, like you can you know no longer having to move around so you can actually have resources that last a long time. You can start building buildings that you're not gonna run away from. So there's there's benefits to farming, but I understand if you're you know, in the year 1500 BCE and there's just wild berries and f- friendly bunnies hopping up and lying on their bellies in front of you. <laughs> you're like, well, I'll just eat that bunny. Right. It'll be easier.
0: And actually from this book now, I, I think I, if I was thrust back in time and didn't have this book, a few things I would remember. Now I actually understand crop rotation. Like I'd heard of the concept of leaving fields fallow, but I didn't really get what that was about. And now I think I, if you've got a plot of land, don't just plant the same shit every year
1: it's yeah. not going to be a good strategy because it draws farming. the same nutrients out of that land and eventually
0: yeah you have to do your, what was your optimal was it a four different subfield rotation you had
2: yeah the four field rotation is the, the fanciest but it's also the most complicated you can just cut your field in half and do two fields so plant half one year half the other year you're working at half efficiency but you're you're rotating crops and that i mean that took us tens of thousands of years to figure out
1: right <laughs> just, and we the more complicated re- version is you have different types of crops that you plant in a, in a rotation on the same soil that tr- have different requirements. Other... Yeah. What was your favorite chapter of the book to research and write? Oh, gosh.
2: Um, the favorite, I'll do it in two of them. Favorite one to write was the one about uh, major philosophies and religions summed up in high-five format. <laughs> <laughs> I did like that one. <laughs> because I was, it was a lot of fun to sort of condense all these ideas into like something about high fives. And I felt like it was – you know it's just two pages in the book, but it was a really good two pages. I was happy to write it. Um, fun to research. The one that I knew about before but didn't know the specifics of was uh, the way we had discovered and forgotten and discovered and forgotten and discovered and forgotten the fact that uh, vitamin C cures scurvy <laughs> – and you can get it just by eating oranges or lemons or limes. And just this, this comedy of errors where we as a species keep missing this information and then having all these people die and having to rediscover it every single time. Right. It's just, it's, it's
1: embarrassing fact, for us
2: as a species.
1: It, it is such a shitty, fatal illness with such an easy solution. Like I can't yeah. I can't think of any disease that is more easily fixed than just and have deliciously. Yeah, just yeah. have a few lemons or limes on board. Just take some limes yep. on your ship, and then you, you literally <laughs> won't get this thing that kills so many sailors and so many people.
2: It's it's when you think of the number of people that would have died throughout history just for the lack of this information. Right. It's it's heartbreaking and also like incredible that we as a species can be so smart and so stupid at the same time. <laughs>
1: Uh,
0: which reminds me we shouldn't forget the fact that this is a very funny book as you are a very funny writer yeah um, someone
1: who's written both comic strips and comics and yeah I've numerous been a, other things
0: i've been a big fan of dinosaur comics ever since i think right around when it launched um i lived in portland and the mercury picked it up and uh, I've yeah
2: that's awesome loved Thank it ever you. Since. yeah it's hilarious it's still in the mercury too
0: oh nice that's awesome yeah 2003 was it when it started
2: yeah, it was in the Mercury around uh, 2005, I think. But you're almost like from the very beginning. That's amazing. As close
0: as I could be, I guess. So I guess I could have found yeah. it on the internet. But um, yeah, it's very funny. And a lot of the chapters start with really funny uh, quotes that are attributed to great thinkers and famous people. But now they can be your quotes because you could just steal shit and go back <laughs> yeah. in time.
2: You can plagiarize them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that. That's. I mean, it's as it a joke in the book, like, plagiarize this idea, you look really smart. But that's one of the things I love about time travel in one in one consistent timeline where, you know, you, you take a Picasso back in time to the Renaissance, and then when it reaches Picasso, he is now inspired by his own past work, and the art has progressed a lot because they've had Picassos hundreds of years too soon. <laughs> and you have this idea that is then... Like Picasso never painted that painting because that Picasso no longer exists. It's like the universe created this painting almost. You're bootstrapping ideas from the universe itself. And that was sort of the core of stealing quotes from the future, attributing them to yourself. And then that person will never say it because you said it first.
1: It's also, I guess, it's also the Back to the Future Chuck Berry paradox. Yes. Oh,
2: right. There's a lot of this book where you can look at Back to the Future and be like, this clearly inspired six-year-old ryan
0: (laughs) (laughs) i was curious were you also did you also ever read uh how things or the way things work by david mccauley as a kid
2: is that the with the cutaways
0: with the and the woolly mammoths and things
2: yeah i wanted that book so i never had it i could i saw pictures of it in like book fairs and stuff i just like stared at those pictures and tried to imagine what the book was like
0: (laughs) it's a great book I, i was on a trip home recently and i flew back with it with me because uh, this does feel like the
1: sort of 2018 updating of that but but also yeah. but also you go into way more ab- abstract concepts as well and it's funny i
0: guess yeah i was trying to think well, it's, it's definitely advanced but i mean i think that kids maybe like 12 and older could still probably it's, it's very approachable like whatever age i was into that book i probably could have handled this also
2: yeah the only thing that i'd question any parents listening or like inform any parents listening about is there is a chapter on birth control oh, which nice. I, I don't have kids so i'm not sure when you start telling them that sort of stuff but maybe you want them to learn about it from a science book <laughs>
1: <laughs> but then again yeah, you know you don't get I, I you don't get that graphic about it you
2: no no and i i thought it was like that's an important part of civilization too and i love that there was this um this birth control the romans had that was so effective they ate it to extinction <laughs> because they couldn't cultivate it. So they just gobbled it. And then uh, now we don't have access to that anymore. So Damn. thanks, Romans.
0: Damn, Romans. they historically
2: what, low birth rates.
0: When I told my dad that we were going to interview about this book and describe the book to him, he said he had heard something recently about how maybe there was some like PBS special about why didn't the Romans usher in the Industrial Revolution? Because they had every, all, the, all the precursors there or something? Is that, is that something you've heard or thought about?
2: Uh, what, what was their answer for what, where they dropped the ball?
0: I, I don't know. He just said that that was the topic of some show or something, and I was like, "Oh, I I, I I don't know."
2: Yeah, I've read some some theories on why it happened in England when it did, and there's like they had a this situation in which they had a lot of uh, people doing crappy work, and so when you had these machines that could do the work for you, those could those those um, human brains and human bodies could be put towards more productive things. That's sort of the argument that it's a perfect storm of potential there. So when it did show up, it could just take the world by storm starting from there. But I'd be curious as to see why the Romans didn't get there first. I mean, there's probably lots of reasons, but... Right.
0: Towards the end of the book, when you get into computer science and, and you describe logic gates, I was like, this is great, and this is a great introduction to logic. And, uh, but what, what's he going to do when it comes time to actually make one of these gates? And then you have a great uh, solution, which is you can have just a water-based computer,
2: Yeah, yeah, it was was purely mechanical. I I put that chapter in because I love the idea of, you know, it seems magical to build a computer from scratch. (laughs) And I love that there's instructions for that in this book. But also the idea that, you know, once we built digital computers and started figuring out how logic gates could work, we started seeing them that you can make them out of you can make logic gates out of pulleys. There's, a, there's instructions made about crabs in the book. A certain species of crabs behaves deterministically enough that you can build a logic gate out of it. Uh-huh. And it's just that these, these pieces were all around us. We never started looking at them in that way until we had built it in the more complicated way. And then could backport that onto reality. Yes. So again, it's an example of like having the pieces around us and nobody – like these crabs existed probably before humans did. Not that you'd build a very reliable computer out of crabs, but you, you can right. still build a logic gate out of crabs, and that's
1: crazy. Have, have people actually... That feels like a, something that a, a bunch of students would do just to see, like, what's the what's the most complicated computer program or game that they, that they can program using just these crabs, crabs. as the gates?
2: <laughs> well, the crab gates, they only got... Um, you need three gates to build a complete set, and they've only got two of them. So you can't actually build, program a game out of crabs, but you can still do binary operations with crabs. Not just, just not all of the binary operations you need. That said, who's to say we can't figure out to get the missing gate out of other sorts of crabs <laughs> and build a crab-based computing machine?
0: Which gate can't you get from
1: crabs again?
2: I don't remember off the top of my head. I think it's, uh, it must be – is it not
1: that made sense for and- the water one. I thought once you have yeah. NAND gates, you can build just about anything.
2: But they don't have NAND, because they don't have knots, so they have and
1: Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Like the water based gate, NAND. you couldn't
0: have water come out if no water comes in, sort of. Yep. So But yeah, that's really interesting. Like all these things we think of as high tech, or like the chapter on music, I was like, okay, but how is he gonna describe what uh, a a four hundred forty hertz A sounds like? And there's a very low tech way of doing that also, which I'd never heard of.
2: That was my favorite part. That all of all of music relies on producing this one tone from scratch at any point in history. And it's like, well, here you go. <laughs> you think music's complicated? to relies on this one tone. And the reason we have that tone is so that um, we know the sound we're talking about. We build our music scales around it, so that your song so that played in like 1500 BCE sounds like my song played in 2018 CE.
1: And what is your method of generating that A? Eh?
2: Uh, Hooks wheel. So basically, um, you have a piece of wood or paper if you're that advanced, and you put it in a wheel where you have you know the number of spokes in the wheel. So by knowing the rate at which you turn it, you know how many vibrations that spokes doing per second on your piece of wood, and from that you can generate the a the 440 hertz sound wave that you need to build music around.
0: So just a giant wheel with 440. Um playing cards basically going through the spokes of, uh, <laughs> and make sure you're do it, spinning it once a second and you'll be hearing a 440 yep. hertz signal yeah
2: but you have your second thanks to your uh, metric system and your pendulum from earlier
0: it's incredible yeah there's so many things that just don't lose that one page I can't stress enough <laughs> if you're back time <laughs> with this book do not lose that ruler page it's very important
1: yeah without, without that without, without knowing exactly what a modern centimeter is then you're screwed as far as You're or at least your your sle- A would be different.
2: Yeah, your 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 rendition of, you know, Salt and Pepper's shoop will sound different than the one we came up with.
0: <laughs> Which this book purports to be the greatest song ever recorded, if I'm correct. Is that...
2: <laughs> so the funny thing about that is in the music section we end with um there's four songs in sheep music that you've now been taught how to read and produce. And the joke is there's like three classics of Western music canon and then there's the Tetris theme song. It's like <laughs> goofy, not up there with like Ode to Joy and stuff. But the, I wanted to have the music to shoop in that section. <laughs> and the right holders could not understand what I was trying to do with this book. Oh so like, God. is it? Tetris? Right. Oh my God. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of a hard pitch, right? Like, well, it's, it's a nonfiction, but it's wrapped in this fictional candy coating. It's about time travel.
1: Yeah.
2: We're like, so is it, a textbook. I'm like, no, it's not a textbook. You read it for fun. <laughs> but, <laughs> but eventually, I reached a point where um they stopped replying to my emails. <laughs> this person is crazy, and no. we don't know what he wants from us.
1: No, you don't understand. I'm teaching my readers how to steal that song and attribute it to themselves. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that might have also been primary. I'm like, here's some songs for you to plagiarize in the past.
0: <laughs> now I'm just trying to picture whoever is answering the phone for the publishing rights for Shoop, how often they get any requests for the sheet music of Shoop. Like, what, what else right. could that really be used for?
2: I thought, you know, they'd be picking up a dusty phone and saying, finally, the calls come in. Yeah. What do you want? But no. Like, no, there's no is,
0: is there a piano transcription of Shoop that they're selling to, like, people without. Like, <laughs> I can't see. <laughs>
2: There's not. I was gonna make it myself. Like yeah. I'll I'll do the I'll do the piano arrangement for you, please. I just need permission.
1: I'm not stealing any don't.
0: revenue from you. Yeah, yeah. nobody's gonna buy yes. this instead of an <laughs> MP3 of the song. Don't worry. That's and great.
1: to be honest, if anyone is gonna successfully use your book to steal that song, then they wouldn't know anyway. They'd be they they would be stealing that song from several thousand years in the past. There you go, Beethoven shoop. <laughs>
0: So yeah, you have it all right there. You've got you can be the greatest artist ever. You can be the greatest musician ever, or the first of either of those ever. You can introduce humanity to numbers and agriculture and medicine. Everything's
1: for uh, right you. Can be here the most influential person on the planet. <laughs> I I do, I do want to talk a little bit about what. So your your masters in computational linguistics. What was it? Your yeah. what did you actually do for it? Oh, that's. I'd love to talk about this. Thank you. Uh, so
2: I did my my thesis on. Um, light verb constructions so a light verb is a phrase in which you've got two verbs and one has its meaning bleached a little bit metaphorically bleached it's lightened so for example uh take a walk you have walk as a verb and take as a verb and there's a sense of taking something when you take a walk like you're you're gaining something but you're not really taking anything literally it's sort of a bleached version of take or give a smile you smile's a verb gives a verb But smile is the important part and give sort of supporting it a little bit. So I was trying to see if these constructions were class based. If you give a smile, give a grin, give a frown. These are all sort of motions about the mouth. (laughs) And Uh if they're class based, uh, can you generate new ones that would sound acceptable to to native speakers? And um, the thing with, you know, any any master's work is that you take the state of the art like we took the state of the art from, I think, 60 percent precision and recall up to 80 percent or above. And it's a small part of a small problem that is now slightly more advanced. But I mean that's that's usually what science is, right? You're not doing glamorous world change stuff most of the time. You're trying to figure out how something works and breaking it down into a small enough part that you can actually answer that question. Right. Like looking at a car and saying, How's a car work? I don't know. But looking at I don't know the switch that turns on the radio. I'm like, oh well, it just connects a circuit here. That's well, easy. Well,
1: particularly <laughs> the in the modern problem. era as well. You, you know, if you don't have the luxury of the time machine to go back two thousand years or what, you, when individuals could make these huge ludicrous strides, most of the most of the stuff now is incredibly. Pe- scientists now specialize in very thin slivers of thin slivers of science.
2: Yeah, but you get to learn. You get like the. I remember first day of of grad school. We had this lecture from probably the dean, and he was saying, you know, you're going to learn a lot about a very small subject, and then eventually the joke is, you know everything about nothing, because they both expand their limits. But if you're very lucky, during the course of this, you'll discover something that no one has ever known before, (laughs) and that feeling is the best in the world. And I was like, man, give me that speech every day, and I'll do whatever you want. (laughs) (laughs) So cool.
1: (laughs) So what what did you discover?
2: I mean, I discovered a way to classify the productivity of light verb constructions slightly more efficiently than what we had before and it wasn't like i'm not even overselling it because I, I don't oversell it but i'm not i'm not selling it very well at all <laughs> but we found the class-based productivity was as we expected and that you could generate them computationally um in a in a more reasonable way
0: generate but, new versions of verbs that you can use in that light fashion or
2: sorry yeah so if you don't if you don't know um if you're a computer and you're trying to sound like a human and generate language and you don't know when you can say take a walk versus walk or um, take a stroll versus stroll or, you know, did, does take a drive sound normal to you? I don't remember if people say that or not. They do. Right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I guess there are some cases where you say take or in some cases when you say have a, you, go right, to, I guess it, you can say take a look or have a look, but you wouldn't. You could take give a give shit. A but you
0: can't really have a give shit. Me a I mean you could have, you a, shit, have a shit. It's not yeah. the same as ha- oh, maybe that's a Britishism. Would you say
1: I'm gonna go have a shit? I mean not in polite company, but no, I would, would say that. Would
0: you say you're gonna have a shower? Because Americans would never say have a shower.
1: Yeah, I would say, would have, say have, a have a shower.
2: Okay. I would have and take a shower. But this is I mean, we did these surveys for uh to get measure the the acceptability of these expressions, where right? I'd get people to rate them from I think one to five. And the fun part about that is uh, we are technically doing just saying fill out this survey and say say this phrase sounds normal to you. But that was technically doing human experiments. So you had to go through all these ethic checks to make sure we weren't breaking the law or breaking the all sense of human decency. Right. And, <laughs> Zimbardo
0: prison experiment or something. Yeah.
2: Yeah, well I feel like every time you go through one of these hoops, like there was a reason there's a reason for this. Someone had done something bad in the past with a survey, and this is why we check we're not breaking ethic laws to say, does take a stroll sound normal to you?
1: Yeah, I don't know what happened. He was just asking me about whether I couldn't can... <laughs> give a smile and the next thing in your I was just electrocuting my classmate
2: <laughs> wrong answer no you take it i just kept pressing the button <laughs>
0: so uh, uh some other things you've written that sort of bear similarity to how to invent everything you had some choose your own adventure adaptations of classic pieces of literature
2: mm. uh i mean i call them chooseable path adventures. i'm sorry i'm sorry that's right. one that's of those a... <laughs> phrases is trademark. <laughs>
0: One of them is to be or yeah. not to be. That is the adventure.
2: Yep. And Romeo and or Juliet. Uh, <laughs> it let me talk about, you know, me and my collaborator, William Shakespeare. Puts the books- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Feels great. Um, but yeah, they were, they came to me. I was, um, the story makes me sound smarter than I am, but I was driving and listening to radio and they're talking about how um, people, when they applied for plays, when they auditioned, they used to just perform poetry or stuff they'd memorized. And now they, now they read from a script. And this actor was complaining about that. And I was thinking, well, what what poetry do I have memorized? And all I had was Hamlet's to be or not to be speech. So I was turning that over my head and I realized like to be or not to be, it's structured like a choice. And mm-hmm. those choose your adventure books. I was like, oh my God, I need to write this. <laughs> <laughs> all at once. Like, okay, so you can choose. You can play as Hamlet or as Ophelia or as Hamlet's dad. If you play as him you get murdered and investigate your own murder as a ghost (laughs) instead of like a play within a play would be a book within a book where there was a mini choosable path book inside of it (laughs) it just came fully formed the only thing that didn't come fully formed was i hadn't read hamlet since high school and this was you know five six years ago and somehow in the decade in between i had completely rewritten the character of ophelia (laughs) in my head Uh like i thought she was just really cool sort of smart very feminist clever woman and in the play she just falls in love with hamlet and dies (laughs) what is this what does happen to ophelia i thought there was more to that also i
0: guess it's been a while sorry i thought there was more to that character also but i guess it's been a while yeah
2: it's she's pretty thin on the ground um she what i what i ended up doing was writing my version of ophelia and having reasons for why she would appear to be that way in the few scenes where she and hamlet share one
0: okay because
2: they're Consistent. But it was it was interesting to uh to revisit the play from a modern point of view because there's a part in Hamlet where Hamlet goes leaves the action in Denmark and then comes back and he's like oh hey by the way I was sent away by boat uh, pirates attacked I battled them I'm their leader now but I'm back here in Denmark forget about it we're here to deal with the action of the play <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Shakespeare is clearly writing for the stage 400 years ago where you can't have a pirate battle but to a modern eye and ear you think like, well i want to see the action scene like where is the climactic battle oh. on a pretty pirate ship you can't just skip over that and say don't worry about it that's just how i got back here so i got to put that scene in the book too where you get to fight pirates because nice. it's in the play It's shakespeare wrote it he just <laughs> glopped over it really quick
0: and then when it comes to the actual soliloquy isn't that about suicide so if you pick not to be is that just the end like
2: uh yeah yeah that, that's when <laughs> you can choose you can reach a point where you choose to be or you can choose not to be, and not to be Hamlet decides to kill himself. It's a very short adventure that time.
1: Okay. Um, I also just want to mention this, just because I, I hadn't realized you drew direct criticism from Glenn Beck. Uh, <laughs> officially, because the short story collection you edited called Machine of Death was, uh, and I quote, exemplifying a liberal culture of death, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> but uh, probably
1: so- more because you beat him to the top spot on the charts
2: yeah what happened was we made this anthology based around it's called machine of death it's about a machine that you it takes a blood sample and it tells you how you're going to die but not when <laughs> and it has sort of this old world irony to it so you get old age and you think oh great i'll live forever and then like this old man runs you over in his car the next day and you're like oh now i get it and i'm dead <laughs> but sort are of like short stories exploring that premise we did a put a book together bunch of us first book put it online and we didn't realize that um tuesday is the day new books normally drop we just said oh we'll put it up on tuesday and um we have been working on this book for years we had all this pent-up demand so it became the number one best-selling book on amazon that day we were thrilled and then (laughs) we realized that you got had people like
1: randall monroe involved in this as well who i think also wrote forward to the book who does the uh, uh xkcd and various other great things yeah
2: what if the explainer he's amazing um and, yeah, so we, we Glenn Beck was accustomed to getting number one. And uh, we started getting these tweets being like, do you realize Glenn Beck just called you out in his show? <laughs> we <were> like, what? <laughs> and so suddenly he had this celebrity. But he was great. He sold us a lot of books. And then uh, to thank him, we sent him a copy of our book. And the way The Machine of Death works is it spritz out a piece of paper that tells you how you're going to die on it. And so we sent his show a copy of Machine of Death with a little slip of paper inside that said paper cut. And we did not hear back from him. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing.
0: And it was this—I guess the same time as that Keith Richards book we talked about, snorting his father's ashes. So Glenn was like, "Oh, all these books about death. Look at these." Well, liberals. that was
2: it. He just like read the title and said, "Oh, liberal culture of death." And it's like, Glenn, I mean, technically, this is an independent, entrepreneur's, bootstrap making a book. <laughs> all by these would be all for this. <laughs> you guys love that stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Plus, hasn't he? Now he's actually doubled back and like, isn't he like on the left side of the spectrum now? Because uh, he realized. It, or, I thought he did some big change because he. He's was definitely changed. He's and,
1: definitely decried some. Of, he, he's he's denounced some of his earlier opinions, but he's just
0: because he thought he could be made from doing that. Or, yeah, he's
1: not Rachel Maddow. Oh, oh was they, that her
0: background? I didn't
1: know that. No, no, I mean like he's not. He hasn't come across to. Her. He's well, not, I thought you
0: were saying she started off
1: as like. No, no, no. He's that. she's. I don't think she's ever been right wing, but okay. she, he's not there. He's more. Like, he's he's less, cons- he's less Alex Jones than he used to be. Ah.
2: I haven't checked in on him for years. Sorry, Glenn. But <laughs> I, do, like, I do really respect saying, you know what, I think I've grown as a person and I don't agree with the stuff I said before. A lot of people don't say that, right? They just stop talking about it and ignore it. But I think, like, coming out in public media, you know what, I was shitty back then. I'm trying to be less shitty now. Like, that's, that's a hard thing to do. So that's good true. on you, Glenn, for that. <laughs> It helps. I mean, it's better not to have those bad opinions in the first place. Right, <laughs> but it's right. nice to to learn from your mistakes, is good.
0: And then rent a time machine. Go back then and time. rent a time machine. Undo Go this back, prevent the mistakes from happening. Line, prevent those <laughs> bad from
1: happening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you could. Uh, That's you, the ideal version of this. <laughs> you could be Glenn Beck before Glenn Beck. <laughs> it the worst use of this book. He <laughs> he could be Clinton Literally, he was everything that's in the book—from like how to create medicine, technology, vehicles—from like the bicycle to the boat to the plane to the car—instead, you're just like, I know, I want to know how to be a shitty person on the internet and on TV.
2: <laughs> First, build me an internet. Right, right.
0: And you could surprisingly, the radio thing was—I uh, was surprised at how low-tech some of these initial versions of things could be. Also, like, yeah, the, a radio receiver—you could just have a long rod and then a pretty um and then a diode or a pretty simple speaker yeah it's this doable.
2: was this was what sort of surprised me writing the book i was really glad to see it there is i, I call it the low-hanging fruit of history like stuff that is easy to understand and build once you know what to do with it but actually like sincerely fundamentally useful
1: well right at the very beginning that chart that we mentioned a while back on the show of the the sort of the language abstract numbers and so on scientific method in your chart you sort of go when it when it was invented and when it could have been invented which was basically the dawn of humanity yes
2: yeah we've made some mistakes we took our time but i mean that the hard part i think with language is that it is really only useful when two people have it and the other problem with language is that if you don't learn it when you're young it's very hard to learn like there's we 've all I guess most of us have tried to learn second languages and we know how hard it is. But when you have these examples of feral children who never learned a language like they they never become comfortable with writing, let alone reading or right. reading or yeah speaking let alone writing right. they they're just it's it's alien to how they live their lives and so if you 're trying to invent the first language, you not only have to be smart enough to learn it as an adult but to teach it to yourself to, as an adult and also teach someone else. <laughs> yeah it's, right it's, you can when you look at all those challenges you can see like oh i guess that is why it would take so long is that you need to have basically i call him caveman einstein to <laughs> <laughs> cross all these hurdles to produce something that is valuable and will survive a generation
1: right and each, each time it sort of steps up a level of complexity it sort of has to start with the children because the adults are already past the point where it's going to sink in yeah. So it has to be yeah. each level of complexity can be at quickest one generations, one generation at a time. It can take whatever the number of years between each generation is. That's the minimum. That that's the minimum amount of time that it would take to to level up.
2: But if you're a time traveler, you can go back and just you know find someone's kids and start teaching them your language, right. and they'll learn like any other kid, and you'll just. Address yourselves to the children until they grow up. Like so that's, that's the fastest way. You're advocating
0: kidnapping cave babies and teaching them your language.
2: I'm so not thing and you know ingratiating yourselves into their lives. Okay, yeah.
0: <laughs> getting, the, getting the nonverbal parents to trust you with these weird sounds around their kids until it sinks yeah. into their plastic brains and <laughs> until they're old
2: enough to say shut up, Dad. I like this <laughs> guy now.
0: <laughs> I like it. It's solid advice. If you are stranded yeah. in the past with a model, what's the model number of the time machine again?
2: Uh, the FC 3000.
0: FC 3000. And it is broken down and you have this book. You have all the tools in place to get the world back to the present or some semblance of it. Yes. It's great. It's just a really neat. fun book, especially because you can just uh, kind of jump in and out at various points. It's You don't have to read it all in order, but it, it does. it's even better if you do.
1: Holiday season's almost coming up as well. It's a very good, it's a very giftable book. And it comes oh, this out, is great. Thank you. It comes out
2: on <laughs> Tuesdays. Right? Are books still Tuesdays? Yes, they're still Tuesdays, it turns out. September eighteenth.
0: Albums changed from whatever they were to Fridays, right? Now albums and movies are the same day, I
2: think. Yeah, although movies cheat, like you have preview night and preview oh, right, preview right, night right. and sneak peeks on Wednesday and
1: so but September this generally
2: comes out on Tuesday, September eighteenth. Yeah. And I'm glad you guys liked it. That was, I'm the book's still new and exciting and I'm I'm really thrilled to hear people enjoying it. That's <laughs> what you want,
1: right? You yeah. see the baby book out in the world, like I hope people like it
0: definitely yeah it's it's right up my alley and i think our listeners will get the same it's, enjoyment out of
1: it yeah it's all this given that our show is our listenership is a mixture of people who like funny things and people who like scientific things and this is pretty much exactly what the book is
2: <laughs> perfect awesome
1: so, so listeners check it out that once again is how to In- how to invent everything by ryan north
0: and we'll link to it over on probably science.com you could just buy it right there buy a few copies yeah <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it.
2: Oh, it was my pleasure. This was a lot of fun.
0: Likewise, likewise. Cool. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for talking about computational linguistics, too. <laughs> sure.
0: <laughs> Thanks a lot. Have a good one.
2: You too.
1: That was Ryan North. That was Ryan North. I hope you enjoyed it. We Like we say, we, we like Ryan. We like the book. I think you'd like it, too. Check it out. Have a look online at some of the... Little snippets of it. Yep. Yep. See what you think. It is a fun book. Uh before we go, before we wind this one up, uh I wanna say shout out to Ryan Four, who came to the Star Talk taping that I did in New York. He mailed about that. And just let people know. Just remind people if you want to come to any Jim Jeffrey show tapings, we're about to start the last ten episodes of season two. It's every Tuesday in Hollywood. So if you happen to find yourself in Hollywood on a Tuesday afternoon and you wanna come to that taping, uh do that. And also, if you are not in the area, please watch the show because you'll see some of my jokes. And the more people who watch the show, the more chance I have of still having a job next year. That
0: is a very good point. Do your do your part, probably, sites listeners. If, if this fails, it's on you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Remember when Trump told the voters at that rally that if he gets impeached, it's because of them? It's because of them not because voting. Of his supporters. Yeah, it's yeah. not because of the things he did. Right. It's entirely okay. because of Took a, th- them not voting
1: th- and the people who would stop that from happening. Didn't mean to make
0: it political at the end here. Uh, I also wanted to thank few listeners who came to visit my camp at crossroads including bex who hails from near my hometown in michigan she drove all the way out for that Um, that's your
1: camp at burning man uh what is you just said your camp crossroads you didn't explain what your camp oh i'm sorry
0: i didn't say i didn't say burning man yes just in case people thought you just have a general camp i'm now a camper full-time camper (laughs) uh another listener came by a few days earlier and um i I can't remember your name email in if you want probably signs at gmail.com but thank you for visiting I appreciate it Um, it's
1: really cool we get to meet listeners to the show
0: yeah especially in that kind of environment it's happened a few times a few years back um, a listener from Australia he and I went and uh, sang some karaoke in a tent somewhere (laughs) 2015 burn I think Um, yeah we really appreciate all you guys for sticking with us all these years and um it was the
1: 2014 bird 2014
0: you know what we got to get be accurate on these things definitely. yeah we,
1: we don't want letters we do want letters but not the <laughs> not wrong letters, kinds of letters yeah. letters that we want include questions comments clarifications uh, stories you'd like us to cover and you can send all of those to us at probably science at com, or you can tweet us at probably science. you can also find us facebook slash probably science we will be back with a regular episode going through stories and articles and all that kind of stuff next week so do send those in and we've got some corrections and other things like that from previous weeks that we might have time to get through in that episode as well but in the meantime thank you so much for listening it's nice to be back i hope you're enjoying whatever commute or walk or run or shower or whatever wherever it is you listen to us and once again that book is how to invent everything by ryan north
0: yep we will see you next week thanks bye